This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Schools in many big cities have been closed to in-person learning for over a year. Finally, some of them are beginning to open their doors. New York City has announced that next year, everything's going to be in-person learning. But they say that right now, 61% of all students are still taking some, if not all of their instruction at home and 28% of the teachers still are not back in the classroom. And moreover, we learned that New York City, like other big city school systems is losing a significant share of its enrollment It's 4% in New York City. And a lot of the problem is concentrated among high school students. High school classes have been the last to reopen. The restrictions on socializing are severe and unpopular, and many high school students see little point in going to school. But the pandemic highlights a larger problem, the, the challenges facing the American high school, especially the instruction of the disadvantaged. You can see that at the lower tiers, there's some improvement over time, but by the time kids get to high school, uh, we don't see much improvement in the quality of our educational system. So how do we improve this? How do we change this? What, where do we go in the future? Uh, Margaret Raymond, a senior research fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, has looked at exactly this question in a just released report that she edited uh, herself, uh, she has written this article within the larger collection. Uh, the, the book as a whole is, is focused on how to improve our schools in the post-COVID era, and, and that's worth reading as a whole, but you today we're really going to focus on her own essay in this volume that focuses on the high school. And I'm really pleased to have Margaret Raymond with me on the Education Exchange today. Your friends call her Mackie. I'm going to do that today. So Mackie, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Well, thank you for having me, Paul. It's delightful to be here. So Mackie, congratulations on your new report uh, that you've edited and brought together. And, and there's just a lot of good stuff in there. I have to admit that a couple of pieces in there are by yours truly but we're gonna focus on your contribution here. What are your key recommendations for reforming the high school in the post-pandemic era? Well, I would be happy to chat about my recommendations, but let me first do a moment of setup, which was before the pandemic, high schools were nothing to write home about. Uh, we already knew that we had a high school model that was completely out of step with the demands that are placed on high school graduates today. We knew that we had institutions that did not adequately prepare students either for college or for career opportunities post high school. And so the pandemic just laid all of that out in much sharper relief. So many of the recommendations that come out of this chapter are actually rooted in earlier work that understands the, the existing problems and had already identified some pathways forward. So those recommendations include a redesign recommendation that says that students actually should be center of the high school experience model, that they ought to be able to have experiences and classroom instruction and out of school time that combines to give them both career understanding and readiness 
and academic preparation and what I call navigator skills, understanding that learning is going to be a lifelong process so that not only do you have to figure out what you're interested in now, but you also have to think about the fact that you're likely gonna to have to retool several times over the course of your working life. And so creating a system of, of institutions that actually focus on preparing students in those ways would create a magical transformation of high schools. And the way that we think about that is that you would actually uh, be incentivizing a personalized career and college readiness program for each student. We have available curriculum, we have available technology, we have available partnerships with outside organizations to be able to create these opportunities for students. And my first recommendation is that we should do that. Well, there are some people out there, I guess the people I'm thinking of are those who put together the International Baccalaureate, but they're not alone in, that, in this respect. They say, well, look at a basic education in English, algebra, geometry, biology, chemistry, physics, social studies, all of, this is what kids need to learn. That is what is preparation for life. That does give you exactly the kind of background you need for, for adding on what you want to do with your own specific life, but you need that core. How does your idea differ from that? So I, I totally understand that the recommendations there are for an extremely well-rounded uh, individual academically. I also have to say that in many, many circumstances across the United States, schools are not equipped to deliver that. They're not equipped to deliver that either on the faculty side or on the schedule side. Uh, part of that is regulatory in nature that uh, over time, additional requirements have been placed on schools that they must include uh, units of instruction on all kinds of things that do not add to your list. Uh, the other is that, that there are, um, unfortunately, uh, places where the actual content of the course, regardless of what the title of the course is, does not match the kind of preparation that you're talking about. So one of the recommendations that comes out of the, of the essay is that we really need to focus more on what the intended content and mastery of content is in, in the course of high school and think very differently about giving kids opportunities to create that. So on the surface, I don't disagree with the IBAC, uh, International Baccalaureate um, recommendations. What I would say, however, is that it's not clear to me that that can all be done in the same amount of time as people spend in high schools today. Well, so the, um, the idea of mastery is in, in your recommendations and you're, you're saying you should have personalized learning and you should have mastery of the material and not worry about how many hours you're sitting in the classroom and how many uh, days of the week and, and days of the year that you're studying a particular subject, which is, is what we have now. I think it's called the Carnegie unit. Uh, so that's one of the challenging uh, ideas in your, in your proposal here is we should get rid of the Carnegie unit. Can you tell us a little bit what you mean by that? Certainly. So the Carnegie unit was actually developed for higher education in order to try to standardize what content would be included in a college level course. That practice migrated down into high schools to represent now um, a requirement that in order to get a credit towards graduation, a student must spend a certain number of hours in 
particular kinds of courses. What's ended up happening is that that creates an incentive system where the number of courses that go under the heading of, let's just say math in 10th grade has proliferated and the content has become diluted so that a student could actually spend 180 hours in a math class in 10th grade and get a quarter of what a 10th grade math requirement ought to look like. And this has created all kinds of perverse incentives that give students credit for graduation without adequate preparation, give teachers credit for teaching when the amount of material that they're actually delivering instructionally is much smaller than it should be. And it creates a financial problem in terms of accounting for what we're actually buying when we pay for a college, a high school education for a student. So eliminating these and putting everything on a mastery basis and saying, by the time a student is done with high school, they ought to be able to be mastered the following sets of learning standards. And we can test for that. We can prove that in, in a lot of different ways. Then that's a way that we can get the kids ready for whatever comes after high school and reintroduce a level of integrity back into the instructional models in high school. So a lot of the kids say they're bored in high school. I hear that again and again. Uh, I, I, when, I, when I talk to kids who are in college and I ask them how was high school, they'll say it was boring. So is it, is it boring because it's designed to be boring? You have so many hours you've got to fill and you just sort of, you know, fill it up with, with whatever. And, and instead of trying to, if you were trying to do something else, you would, you would do things differently. But right now they're trying to fill those hours. Is that, is that what you're saying? Well, I think that it's a fair statement to say that the experience that a lot of high school students have is dead on boring. That doesn't mean it has to be. And I can tell you that across the country, I've been able to identify hundreds of high schools that are incredibly dynamic, fascinating places of learning where there's creative ways of in instructing students, where the walls of the schools are much more permeable so that other kinds of, of instructional expertise comes in, whether it's from industry or whether it's from career paths, and that students end up being part of a larger conversation and community. Those are places where students find meaning, they find value, they find affinity, they find interest, and they find an experience that actually is very enriching. I would love for every single high school student in the United States to have that experience. And I know it's possible because I can see it. So give us a couple of examples. Where have you seen this? So there's a whole range of public charter schools that take individual students and create individual learning programs for them. And what happens is the student shows up at the beginning of a school week and is given an idea of what kinds of standards they're gonna work on that week and are given a set of resources and tools that they themselves curate into their own lessons. And then they meet with a monitor or a teacher or a, uh, a checker during the end of the week to be able to show how much they've actually been able to accomplish. And what this ends up doing is leveraging the teaching time to help solve problems instead of just delivering, standing and delivering material. It also puts a lot of the creative um, expectation on students and they seem to really respond to it. So I can see this as a, as a viable model across all different kinds of, of communities. 
Well, I know this is a very popular idea and it has been for a long time in the history of, uh, of American education. There's always been a talk about we should have a more problem solving approach to our educational system, especially in our high schools. Uh, but you know, how can you ensure that they're covering all the things that they need to know? Let's say in geometry, there are certain things you need to learn if you're going to have a, a mastery of that, that, that uh, discipline, even at the high school level. Uh, so how do you do that if you sort of let kids go off and explore things in willy-nilly uh, on their own? So I think that there's a great distance between willy-nilly as you have just described it, and personalized individual instruction and learning. And I think the expectation of mastery of particular learning standards keeps kids in a fairly uh, narrow guardrail sort of pathway. Um, I think the incredible work that great teachers do to create exciting ways for students to learn material and to practice their learning um, keeps it uh, targeted and focused on the material and the mastery that they're expecting of students and the opportunities to for check in on a regular basis, make sure that kids just don't go wandering off into the wilderness. Well, all of this sounds great and I'm, I'm really quite persuaded, but I want to know whether or not we've got the teachers that are capable of doing this. I mean, as I sort of see the history of schooling in recent times is as a a diminution of the quality of the average teacher in the classroom, that we don't have the same quality teachers that we once had, partly because so many teachers are female and women have so many other opportunities in life than they once did. And so the classic great uh, uh, female teacher is just no longer available. Uh, it, is the real problem that we don't have the instructional leadership that we once had? So I, I think that's a great question. And it also allows me the opportunity to uh, do a little shameless plug for some of the other parts of the, of the anthology that was just released um, by the Hoover Education Success Initiative. A number of those topics are treated there as well. But I think that the answer here is that while there is a real need for great teachers across the country, we also have significant barriers to access for people who might be incentivized to become teachers. And so we have a system that says, we're not going to be uh, open to the idea of career switchers or non-traditional uh, teachers coming into the profession. We're very closed down in the way that we, we provide access. And the consequence of that is that there are less and less focuses on diversifying the teacher core and many more about making uh, teaching a highly regulated industry because it is now so much more um, controlled in terms of access. You have to be able then to control the inputs that you get. I think with greater school choice, I think with greater flexibility on professionalized um, access to the career, I think with a lot of the brilliant ideas that are being shared now over, over the internet, best of breed kinds of lesson plans, that we can actually amp up what happens for kids in high schools today. So what's your vision for the use of technology in education? I think it's been a very humbling experience, the pandemic. A lot of people not too long ago were thinking, that virtual education, digital education, even blended education in the classroom 
was the, the wave of the future. And I think uh, given the disappointment that so many have had with online learning, maybe because it was badly done, but nonetheless, it's worldwide, we're getting messages back from everywhere. I just uh, listened to Andreas Schleicher talking about digital learning worldwide and saying it just didn't work out this past year. So what's, what's, how do you see technology being used in this vision of the new high school? Well, I've been accused of being pro-technology in the past. So I guess I will just put that hat on and say, I, I remain very optimistic. Um, of, about the utility of, of technology. I don't think that it will ever fully replace uh, adults helping students untangle the knots that they get themselves into or help diagnose why students aren't able to move forward. I think that the experiences that we've had with digital education so far, and I would include online charter schools, a topic that my team at Stanford researched several years ago, these models I don't think are the optimum of what could be. The models that we have have mostly taken classroom instruction and tried to just move it onto a platform. And I don't think that's the way you take advantage of technology. I think technology has the possibility of dramatically reinventing the learning experience to be much more interactive and in, in immersive. And so I'm not ready to, to, to throw in the towel on technology yet. I just don't think we've had the opportunity to create enough of the really good examples for people to catch fire with that. The other topic that I'd like to get your uh, wisdom on is the connection between the high school as, as it can emerge and the junior college or the first year or two of college. Right now, there's such a separation between high school and college. And uh, that's, that's breaking down in, in many places. And wh what's your vision of how we can get the different tiers of our educational system to be more complementary and more interactive? Well, I definitely agree with you, Paul, that I think at this point, um, secondary education and post-secondary education or, or job training are very siloed experiences. I don't think they have to be. And we can point to some examples, even here in the Bay Area, where some districts have figured out a way to relax that and bring in either early college models or bring in a credentialing process at the high school level that allows students to choose actual career paths and start stacking credentials towards a job that actually not only has a, um, a livable wage, but also has a career progression path to it. So things like IT and some of the nursing and medical uh, industry uh, professions are being taught in the high school setting with community people coming in and being supports and also stacking into experiences in the, in the workplace, experiences beyond uh, just a high school. So getting to college, college courses early on, building a better portfolio so that you're ready for college. I think all of that is uh, great ground for more fertile development. And I really hope that we see much more of that. 
Well, you know, one of the barriers to that is the rigidity of the secondary educational system with all of the state laws on it at the Carnegie unit, as you point out, and, and the collective bargaining that says you've got to have certain kinds of people who are teaching in high school. Community colleges have a little bit more flexibility. They can bring in somebody for one day a week or have somebody whose job it is to to, to be in a hospital, but comes in for a, a short period of time and, and works with kids and gets a lot of satisfaction out of it. Is that your vision of how the high school can develop in the future? I absolutely think that's the case. I think that's where we have to go. And we do see many examples of that, maybe not in the early college or career and technical, but much more flexible staffing. We see that a, a lot in the charter school arena where uh, given the opportunities that they have to staff whatever makes sense for their school at a particular point in time, um, they get a lot more bang out of their human capital dollar for that reason. You know, they'll bring in one person for one course, or they'll make sure that the, the opportunity exists for part-time teachers who are really, really keen on doing it, but don't want to work a full-time job they can figure out a way to meld all of that together. So I think many of the practices that we see that are successful in the post-secondary world eventually have to bleed back down into the secondary, uh, secondary grades. And I think the sooner we can relax the things like the Carnegie unit and the staffing restrictions and the really rigid ways in which budgets are allocated in the high school setting, I think we'll be able to see more flexibility pay off in a lot more of these creative models that I think will lead to greater success. So I hear what you're saying, more flexibility is needed now. Now, let me ask you about the, the collection as a whole, uh, the, the, the book that you've uh, uh, published here or the report that you have issued, which has uh, I think eight or nine essays. Uh, uh, what, what would you, is this contained, what you think are the essentials for reforming American education? Is, is, this, is this the Bible, so to speak? Can we, is it all here? Is the story here? How would you characterize the collection as a whole? So I, I think it would be a touch arrogant to say that it's the entire blueprint. Uh, but I do think that there are, in every single chapter, there are extremely important fundamentals that I think are actually non-negotiable if you want to bring the quality of primary and secondary education up in the United States. So these, these foundational recommendations that show up in these essays, while they're tied to the idea that as we're coming out of COVID, we have an opportunity to rethink and to redesign and to set new directions, many of those foundational recommendations, we would have wanted to make those whether COVID happened or not, it's just that the COVID context now makes them much more ripe for discussion and potentially ripe for, for moving forward. I have been speaking with Margaret Raymond, Senior Research Fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. She is the editor of a new report just released on the Hoover website entitled, How to Improve Our Schools in the Post-COVID Era. Thank you, Mackie, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. It was great to be here. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education X website every Monday at noon Eastern time.